Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. So have you heard this term smart cities? It seems to be increasingly used. Yes, uh, I have heard that term and I actually went to look up the definition and there's actually no agreed upon definition for what it actually entails. So there's actually kind of a different um, viewpoint depending on who you're asking, but it's still a very fascinating concept. Well, we have someone in studio with us today who we can ask and get his definition. Uh, I want to preface this by saying Canada is all over this smart city concept. It has recently issued a smart cities challenge. And the idea, maybe not the definition, but the idea is to try and encourage communities to adopt technologies, to innovate, to collect data, all to the benefit of citizens. And in this challenge, 50 million bucks is the prize. That's not bad. It's not chump change. It's not chump change. And it could be any sized community. So you could be a a tiny BC community of a few hundred people could win. Who knows if that'll be the case. But we're going to dive into this further with our guest on our feature interview this week. Nicholas Jeffrey is the CEO of Vancouver-based Uniserve. The company offers a variety of services such as high-speed internet, bundled packages for businesses. It also develops data center infrastructure technologies. And Nicholas was previously director of data center solutions at CBRE. He's also an authority on smart cities. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave, for inviting me. Let's start with that definition. Do you have a definition? Is there some sort of definition for what constitutes a smart city? For me, the definition is around a city should be cognitive, not connected. Hmm. So if you imagine that when you send a letter to print, it's going between your laptop and the printer. That's connected. Right. Cognitive should work out that you do this all the time and you're going to do 50 pages, so I'm going to send it here rather than I'm going to send it there. Or you want it in color, so I'm going to send it to this printer or this printer. If you take that to a city environment, a way that the Internet of Things gets involved is a set of traffic lights knows that an ambulance is coming towards it and it's got its siren on, so it's going to turn the lights to green to allow the ambulance to go through. But it also knows that there's a fire engine coming in the other direction with its sirens on and it's going to make a decision on your behalf. Mm. So this involves machines-to-machines thinking and then us humans analysing what's going on and cognitively working out what we should do in the future. People might be familiar in a newer office building, for example, where you have the elevators and it directs you to a certain elevator. Would that be the right idea? Yeah. So the idea is, is that it could be a smart home, which effectively you're able to turn on your lights when you're up in Whistler or turn on your heating because you're coming back from a holiday. Or you might escalate that into a smart building. So you've got multiple floors. A smart building cognitively would know on a Saturday and Sunday how many people are coming into the building. So it's going to say there's only 50 people across seven floors. Everybody go onto the first floor. We're going to create a hot desking environment. We're going to close all the other floors down. So the, 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 the owner of the building saves money on lighting, heating and security. But it's cognitively picking that up because it's going into Outlook to check. Interesting. And using that analogy, it's maybe easier to think about a building before expanding it to a city. That building would have to be arranged to have that one floor be able to accommodate people moving to it, right? Correct. So there's a lot of um, desk space and building space optimization going on. Because if you take city councils, if you took corporations, they tend to be asset rich, but cash poor. 
So they've actually built a lot of buildings over a period of time. They don't need all of those buildings because they actually don't have the right density. So when we start to look at working from home and hot desking, you probably can get a 1.8 or 1.5 to 1.8% occupancy per desk. So the idea is, is you've got more people in that building at any time than you've got desks. So the smart have to come in to work out where to start to put people. But you want to try and cluster them by activity. So you don't want five accountants on one floor, five accountants on another floor. You sort of want them in the same place so that they can have synergies in their work time environment. Well, let's talk a little bit about maybe the dollars behind this, the infrastructure that's going to be required. I think most recently, TELUS spent upwards of $60 million to acquire a security firm in order to further its own uh, smart connected home goals here. Uh, And they also have, what, $50 million up for grabs, as Haley was saying uh, earlier with regards to this smart city initiative that's going on in Canada. Is this possibly going to become a, a cheaper endeavor going forward because there are big bucks behind what it's going to take to actually get these things implemented right well if you start from a home um if you look at vancouver there is a very large rental base in vancouver and some expensive homes and a lot of people from outside of canada so we arrive in canada as i've just done nine months ago and i say i'd quite like a smart home please to the landlord and he goes yep we don't have anything smart in the house. We don't have any sensors. We don't have any lights that come on. You can't control your lights from outside your vehicle. You can't do any of that stuff. So I now have a choice as a tenant. I can either go and find a funky boutique smart home company who are going to drill walls and they're going to take stuff down. My reparations to that building in two years when I leave potentially are going to be enormous. Now technology, you can go to Best Buy. You can go to Best Buy and you can buy a camera for $27. And within about seven minutes, you can have your smart home equipped. What Uniserve have done is effectively said, we're going to use TV as the platform so you can view all of your devices. So you use your TV as a gateway to a smart home. So you can do it cheaply. You don't have to go out and spend a fortune. The interesting thing is the analytics that's being done allows you to save money because If you think of an office, let's say seven floors, eight floors, think how much you can save by not having the heating and the lighting on in areas where you don't have any people over the weekend. Mm -hmm. At the moment, all the lights stay on, all the heating stays on, because actually one person might turn up. So eventually, it's actually going to be worth it for these companies to make these investments. And what you're also getting at is it doesn't have to be these huge infrastructure investments that a lot of people figure. But I, I think that's the cost savings that a lot of people don't often calculate here. I was talking to, say, a company that develops uh, electric buses, and they were making the case that, okay, well, it may cost more up front, but the cost savings that you're going to get over 10 years versus a diesel bus, it's going to save these companies, these transit companies, like lots and lots of dough here. Is it, is it kind of a similar thought process here is like eventually it's going to make things more practical. There's going to be increased productivity. There's going to be increased efficiencies created, and it's eventually going to save people just dollars wise too well there's two sides to the smart building paradigm which is how does it help the owner and the facilities management company who are only interested in the dollar savings the other side of the coin is how does it help the tenant and the resident so am i going to get a better life a better environment because of it Mm. so if you look at europe which is where i've come from from london england In Amsterdam, they're even doing experiments with lighting to see how the changing of the lighting hue improves productivity. 
Wow. So in the afternoon when we've all been out for our large Stella beer in Amsterdam at lunchtime and then we come back and we feel a bit sleepy, they change the colour of the lights because it stimulates our productivity and it makes it for a better environment. You go into economics, ergonomics of chairs, you go into sound systems and everything else. All of a sudden, the tenant has a better experience. Therefore, he's not going to leave the building to go to a shabbier building. So the owner gets longer leases. So actually, everybody wins. But we've, we're very early on in this stuff. So we've got to work out what the metrics are and over what time of period you get the repay. The, the concern for a newsroom, though, with journalists is that uh, they're going to come in after lunch and it's going to look as if they're staring at the sun because of the, uh, the hue <laughs> in here. That's all I can say. But the, but the interesting thing about the, the, the 50 million dollar prize that federal government has put up is a very, very interesting catalyst to these ideas. So last night actually was the the, the meeting of the great and the good. And there was about 70 people in downtown uh, Vancouver. And Surrey and Vancouver have done a joint bid, mm. which is quite an interesting concept because they are very different cities with very different issues. But they've done a joint bid together. So you have the Microsofts, the Oracles, and everybody else all looking at how they can make the city smart. And then they're going after a bid of 50 million, but also going after that bid is Calgary, is Toronto, who's already partnered with Google. So it's trying to work out, smart is not necessarily all about technology. You should really focus on the users and the people and then just make the technology a slave to that, rather than just going in putting smart lights for the putting in smart lights. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, Vancouver and Surrey, they don't share a border, right? They're not side by side. So what's sort of the, the opportunities for them to to work on this together? Well, I think the interesting thing is they sort of all have already won because hmm. actually you've got two big cities and there is a migration issue going on because in my opinion, sort of Vancouver's turning itself into a little bit of a Monaco or a Disney that only the extremely wealthy are going to be able to afford to live here. Everybody else, sorry, you're going to have to get on the Sky Train and commute in. So there is this whole commuter piece going on. But the interesting thing, I think the reason why the cities have both won is that from a mayoral standpoint, they're talking. Mm. From a CIO standpoint, they're talking. From a policy statement, they're talking. So they've already got this framework, even when down to procurement, so they're talking. They've got big budgets each. They've got similar problems, not the same problems, but they're talking. So whether they win the $50 million or not, the fact that this one project has brought the two together, I think, is really good for the cities. Now, anybody between those t- two cities, possibly because they're not big enough, cannot go for the $50 million, but there are prizes for $5 million and $10 million here and there. So other cities in the area, not the major primary, secondary or tertiary cities, can go for smaller amounts. So nobody's excluded, but the big cities with the big populations are going for a $50 million bid. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we take a short break? We'll be back to continue this conversation in just a moment. But for now, this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax and valuation services to businesses in the lower mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600. At 604-714-3600, or else check them out on their website at manningelliot.ca. So we were just talking about this Vancouver and Surrey bids, and but beyond the, the thought process behind the bid, 
You've been here nine months. How much is, I guess, this region embracing the concept of smart cities? How equipped, how well equipped are we to really move forward with these endeavors here? You can be honest. That's what we want to hear. (laughs) Canada is behind the curve. So um, my wife is an urban developer and an architect, and we've done two cities. We did one for Mercedes-Benz in uh, Hungary, and we did another one on an island midway between the United Kingdom and France, an island called Alderney. So we are talking religion. We're not selling Bibles. The country and the cities are not in the weeds and sorting out IoT and technology and concepts. Some cities are a little bit more advanced, be that Calgary on East Village and West Side and the two projects they've been doing. But when you look at Vancouver, Vancouver and Mayor Gregor have really been focused at being green and sustainable. I moved partly because of green state and, and the uh, sustainability story. But the issue is is that it should be focused on smart because with smart, you get green and you get sustainability. With sustainability and green, you don't get smart. Mm. So I think that Canada is a little way behind. Um, I spent a good two hours in this meeting last night and they were talking pretty basic stuff. I think, um, and interestingly, we we were presented and I walked into the room and put an elephant on a big piece of paper on the wall. And halfway through, one of the audience said, so Nicholas, what is the elephant in the room? (laughs) And the elephant in the room to me is that the population of Vancouver appear to be in a little bit of denial about the fact that there is a one in 10 chance of having an earthquake or having a tsunami. Mm -hmm. So if we equip the city with autonomous vehicles and smart street lights and ubiquitous Wi-Fi, it's all sort of going to disappear fairly quickly. But when we look at our plans for evacuation and everything else and look at the earthquake or the, that happened in Alaska last week and the effect that it had on Vancouver Island, some of the alarms didn't go off. Some of the people didn't get access to the app. It took an hour and a half to, to get the doors knocked, to get people to move. When they woke up, they didn't know what to do. So my concept would really be, why don't we take technology and smarts and make that our bid for the two cities. So actually, we are contributing to life continuity or commercial continuity. We're not just trying to get the streetlights to turn on at seven o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Walk us through how you can use sort of smart planning when it comes to earthquake preparedness when you could have an event where systems are down, there's no electricity. So you, I ran a project in Cape Town for schools And we did it in the townships. And we wanted to bring ICT, communications equipment and technology equipment, to the townships. Didn't have electricity, didn't have gas turbines, had nothing. And we brought in a 40-foot container, like a thing you would see on the back of a truck, on the back of a ship. And we equipped that with solar panels on the roof. The solar panels on the roof were enough to drive all the equipment inside And we use satellite to deliver connectivity. So we didn't need cable in the ground. We didn't need fiber. We didn't need a generator. The whole thing was contained in a container that actually was delivered to the township. 
in an earthquake or any disaster of any description, you need these things to be autonomous. They can't rely on Telus and Wipe and Shore. They can't rely on BC Hydro because you don't know what you're going to be left with. So the idea is that a lamppost could have solar, which is driving 12 to 24 hours of light, and it could have a Wi-Fi connection which allows people to connect to the Wi-Fi without having to go near Telus and Shore. So the thing is, you're trying to get sustainability on these devices so that everybody could use it regardless of the outcome. Now, if you put all these streetlights on a route, you're now showing the population how to get out of the city. Because you can see these routes from all over the city and the, and the provincial government or the city government can say, right, go north this direction, don't go east and follow these where the lights are going. Hmm. So all of a sudden you're aiding the community, but you're not having to rely on existing infrastructure. That's it. I mean, these are magnificent things that could come out of this, but a lot of people may push back against, uh, say, the privacy or even like cybersecurity concerns. How do we have that conversation, engage people and, and assure them that, you know, this is going to be for their benefit, but there may be concerns that need to be addressed with, with regards to those two factors there? I'm sort of of the opinion, and this is probably not politically correct, that we gave up our personal security about 10 years ago. With the advent of the smartphones, is that it? So I think that everything is around permission-based marketing. I am a diabetic. I have all my healthcare information on my phone. If I get hit in an accident, there is a code on there to allow any healthcare or paramedic individual to get access to absolutely everything I've got. Do I want the insurance company to have all that information? No, of course I don't, because they'll up my insurance premiums. So you basically have to segregate your data, stop worrying about security, just concentrate on segregation. Now, in a disaster, frankly, I think that everybody in the population wants help. So they're going to say, whatever you need from me, I'm going to help. However I can help my neighbor, I will help. I think in a disaster environment, it's completely all barriers down, just help me get out of this mess. I think in a commercial environment, you're right. Cybersecurity, hacking into autonomous vehicles, that's a real issue. And I don't think that we really thought this through yet. And I don't think there is enough security in place for me to be completely comfortable to get into an autonomous vehicle and drive around the city and not worry about somebody hacking it. Mm. You, you did bring up, and I, I think this is something that we, we need to address here, the fact that Canada is behind the curve. And I, I have to be honest, you're, you're relatively new to this country, but uh, one of our pastimes is... Um, Sending things to committee or getting another report on that before we make like a decisive <laughs> decision. How do we become more aggressive in this arena? How do we really sell people on the importance of making these things happen? What's the type of urgency that maybe needs to be implemented? So actually, there's a good thing that you're behind. In marketing speak, it's called the second mover advantage. So look at Amsterdam. It's now on its second version of Smart City. It will give you a list of 14 things that it did wrong. All you have to do is read those 14 things and all of a sudden you're not going to make the same mistakes. Therefore, you could implement it quicker, you could implement it cheaper and your target audience could be happy with it. So there needs to be a little bit of ambassadorial travel around the world. So, for example, Moscow, the city of Moscow, the CIO of Moscow um, has got 64 developers working on the importance of blockchain in smart cities. If you went to the mayoral offices here or Surrey and said, what's the difference between blockchain or Bitcoin, they'd probably run for the hills and they wouldn't know the difference. (laughs) 
But here is a city, the other side of the world, who's got 64 people working out how the whole thing hangs together. I'm saying get on a flight or bring them over here and pick their brains and learn from them as quickly as you can what works, what doesn't work, and what we should implement now and what we can delay. What role can corporations play in all of this who may already have teams of developers who know and understand the difference between Bitcoin, blockchain, and more importantly, the infrastructure that could go into having a a smart city? It all comes down to funding or corporate social responsibility. I love helping people come up with smart solutions for buildings and for cities and for municipalities, and I've done quite a few. But I run a business. So at the end of the day, I need to generate some revenue and I need to generate some profit to be able to keep the 80, 100 people going and funding. That's the same. So I believe that provincial governments, city governments and city councils have to set aside money to be able to engage with the good and the great and the smart and the people who've done it before to bring them together to fund it. You can't keep asking for favours. Because actually, business is trying to do business. It's not trying to prop up government. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing, when we had the Surrey and the Vancouver session last night, there was a list of things. And I frankly said, hold on, sorry, this is your day job. I'm not quite sure why this is going into a city smart bid. That's what we're paying you to do your day job for. Why don't you get on doing, let's come up with something creative with some innovation behind it for the bid and leave all this day stuff for your day job. So I think there was, let's say, 50, 60 different companies there, the greats, the goods, the Microsoft, the Oracles, the SAPs. They are all willing to help. They want to help. They've got all the technology, but there's got to be an engagement model that makes it sort of worth their while. From your perspective, I mean, you mentioned Hungary and Aldini. What did you learn from those experiences, stuff that you can take and, I guess, implement it with whatever strategies that you think are going to be best for this region? Um, things like... People first, technology second, which is a bit weird coming from a guy that specializes in technology. But think about how people are going to use it rather than what features and benefits or bits and bytes you're trying to sell them. That's one thing. Think about the role of government. Make sure that government cycle is in the right time. So you don't necessarily want to go to the city of Vancouver when you've got a mayoral election coming up because everything gets bolted down and nobody makes any decisions. That's not peculiar to Vancouver. That happens the world over. Right. Think about funding. Think about the partners that are doing the work and how you can bring an ecosystem of partners to make sure you spread the costs as relevantly as you can. Make sure you've got one platform to collect all the data. So if you think about IoT, the Internet of Things, everything out there is IoT ready. doesn't matter whether it's a light, a traffic light, a signal, doesn't matter what it is. But the underlying platform needs to be able to take all of that data and analyze it. That's called big data. So you get people like Google, you get people like IBM Watson that take all the data from the traffic lights, from the signals, from the gates, from the entry systems, from the HVAC, and analyze that. The problem is, is a lot of cities are having several systems underneath. So it's a bit like VHS and Betamax. Yes, they both played videos, but they were completely overlapping and one of them had to die. Hmm. I worry that cities are spending money on the latest shiny silver thing, not thinking about a joined up package. And coming back to the smart city, what cities lack 
is the top of the jigsaw box. So the jigsaw puzzle is inside. It's got 400 pieces. You actually don't know whether you're building sky or sea. It's just blue. If you don't have the top of the jigsaw box, you don't know where you're going. A lot of cities are putting money into IoT and smart city without a strategy. And the strategy will unroll fairly quickly and they will realize they've spent a lot of money, complete waste of time. How far ahead should municipalities and cities be planning, keeping in mind that technology is evolving as we're speaking? So there's that risk if you plan 30 years out that you have built something that's totally antiquated. I think that if you look at Surrey as a good example, so Surrey is the fastest growing city in Canada, in North America. It's it's a building site. There are sky rises going up all over the place. There's road parking issues. There's municipality issues. There's power issues. There's sewage, all sorts of stuff going on. But you have about six or seven different borough departments trying to pull this together. And there's thiefdoms between them. And the left hand doesn't really like talking to the right hand. So I'm saying if you have a strategy, the strategy should be a rolling 10 to 15 year strategy. Within that time, technology is going to be relatively stable. Make a bet on whether this is going to be an Intel platform or a Cisco platform or an IBM platform and stick with it. And then make everybody else compatible with that one core platform. Over a period of time, that core platform will evolve. That should be future-proof. Everything else around it, whether you go for an Okikoki 1000 light post or an Okikoki 2000 light post, doesn't sort of matter. Providing the underlying platform is relatively future-proof, you've got 10, 15 years to work with. Hmm. Really quickly, before we wrap up, we have provincial and federal budgets coming up. This Smart Cities Challenge will likely be in the federal one. Do you think we're at the stage yet where we might start to see provincial and federal governments allocate more funding towards programs like this, or is it a bit Definitely. too early? Yeah. Definitely. I, one of the things that we talked about last night is the 50 million prize should be a catalyst for circa 500 million of funding. Hmm. Now, everybody from venture capital, green funds, banks, municipalities, boroughs can all put into the same pot. And I would recommend that it all goes into the same pot, then it gets spent from there. So there aren't disparate pots you've got to dip in and dip out of. Purely from a technology perspective, the smart thing that Surrey and Vancouver have done is combined procurement. That alone will speed up things and cost a fraction of what they were doing if they were doing it independently. Mm -hmm. So I think you will see a lot more money. And I think the 50 million, you could very easily could see 500 million coming out of it. It won't come from federal government. It will come from a public-private initiative environment. Fascinating. A lot to watch for. We'll have to have you back to keep us updated. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. That's Nicholas Jeffrey. He is the chief executive officer of Vancouver-based Uniserve, an authority on smart cities, which we've been talking about today. And that's it for our podcast this week. This podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Tyler, if anyone wants more business news to connect with you, where do they go? Yeah, you can find all my stories at BIV.com. Haley, we've got a brand spanking new beautiful website. We so do. I would encourage everybody to check it out. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. Haley, where can we find you on social media? My handle is at Haley Wooden. We also have all of our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher. Once again, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow.